We've only ever eradicated two infectious diseases in all of human history, smallpox in humans and rinderpest, variations of which plagued cattle and deer and wildebeests and other even-toed undulates for most of history, before ultimately being officially eradicated in 2010, a century after the development of an early vaccine for it in 1918. Smallpox was likewise eradicated after the development and successful widespread distribution of a vaccine, early versions of which were developed in the late 18th century, and more advanced versions of which were distributed worldwide beginning in 1950. This eventually led to the official eradication of smallpox in humans in mid-1980, so that's zero official cases globally, down from 50 million official cases each year in 1950, a pretty substantial drop that was the consequence of both technological developments and the emergence of global systems of distribution and funding, like the United Nations, which allowed for a more holistic view of global society and enabled a macro approach to these sorts of issues, rather than the localized approach that struggled with the realities of pathogens that don't respect man-made borders. We're still in the process of trying to eliminate polio, which washed across human society in often quite devastating epidemics since prehistory. There's Egyptian artwork that seems to depict people who have come down with the paralytic version of this disease. But polio has been reduced in scale substantially since the emergence of an early vaccine for it in 1950, followed soon after by an oral version of that vaccine, which, like with smallpox, did well in individual communities, but really took off once larger, globe-spanning organizations and systems made an ardent effort to tackle it. In recent years, only a few hundred polio cases have been detected worldwide, annually. And though those numbers have increased recently, in part due to people who are fearful or skeptical of vaccines in various places, the organizations working to eradicate polio remain optimistic they can take it out, just like other groups checked smallpox off the list of things we need to worry about catching, and which might periodically explode into regional or even global pandemics. Malaria, guinea worm, and yaws remain targets of global eradication programs, though their range of effect are limited compared to less environment-specific types of infection. And a handful of other diseases, including measles, mumps, rubella, elephantiasis, and pork tapeworm, have all been tagged as potential targets for eradication at some point in the near future, so long as current vaccination and other prevention efforts remain sturdy, and future efforts and investments provide a boost to help cover the often difficult-to-reach breeding grounds of these diseases. In most cases, though, Diseases that go big aren't wiped out. They merely withdraw to more remote regions, where they can then spread in relative peace, not bothered by the global medical establishment, or they evolve into less deadly and damaging versions of themselves, which makes them more of a bother and only periodically something more akin to their previous wave of death and destruction. 
And when a disease subsides, becoming less harmful or less contagious, and usually becoming more predictable with a steady and deal-withable baseline, it will sometimes be declared endemic, meaning it has become more stable within a population, not having disappeared, but also not radically fluctuating in a worrying way. The common cold, the flu, and chickenpox are endemic in places like the U.S. and U.K., while malaria is endemic in parts of Africa, South America, and parts of South Asia, but not in most of the Northern Hemisphere. If malaria suddenly starts spreading at above baseline levels in the U.S., it could be declared an epidemic, and if the flu starts to spread at higher than normal levels globally and or becomes more potent, more virulent than has become typical, it could also become an epidemic. And both would only become pandemics if they began to spread massively and across many regions all at once. Endemic diseases are not nothing. The flu kills tens of thousands of people a year in the U.S. alone, despite being an endemic disease that we just kind of live with. But they do tend to become less of an issue and less likely to disrupt essentially every aspect of society than an epidemic or pandemic. What I'd like to talk about today is the potential for COVID-19 to become endemic and why this is both an optimistic and worrying possibility. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled New Jersey Governor to End School Mask Mandate in Move to Normalcy. I've done several episodes on various aspects of COVID over the past two years, and I am very much looking forward to a time in which that's no longer necessary. But to establish a quick context for this story, let's take a super rapid look at how we got to where we are now in the first half of February 2022. Around December 2019, early versions of what later became known as COVID-19 started popping up in tests of patients in China. There were a lot of unknowns back then, and it wasn't even clear that anything worrying was happening at first. But this disease eventually became notable because of how fast it was spreading and how virulent, how dangerous, basically, it was to those who caught it. And because there didn't seem to be much you could do for the people who caught it and had serious health outcomes, which was a decent-sized chunk of the people who did catch it, it spread and then spread and then spread some more. It ultimately reached pretty much everywhere on the planet over the course of the past two years. Over this period, we've seen governments struggling to get and make the right equipment, to fund the research necessary to figure out what we're dealing with and how to protect ourselves from it, using masks and other protective equipment, using vaccines and other medical interventions that help amp up our immune systems against this particular disease, and by implementing restrictions and systems meant to keep people safe from each other, including things like standing a fair distance away from other humans, and things like closing schools, limiting the number of people who can be in enclosed spaces, 
and disallowing some types of contact entirely for a time in soft, recommendation-style ways and in hardcore, quarantine-and-shutdown fashion with legal consequences for noncompliance. We've seen supply chains break, borders close, economies falter, and weird trends spread almost as virally as COVID. We've also seen multiple permutations of this disease over the past two years, with the initial version of COVID eventually being designated as Alpha, which was followed by other variants. Delta ended up being a very significant variant, as it was substantially more virulent than Alpha, causing a lot more deaths and long-term health consequences for those who caught it. And the current most common and worrisome variant, as of the day I'm recording this at least, is called Omicron, which is generally considered to be less virulent, less potent in the damage it causes on average than Delta, but also a lot more contagious. It spreads super quickly to pretty much everyone within range, and as a result, a slow climb down from previous Delta-laden infection waves picked back up in a big way beginning in late 2021, surging globally over the past few months and resulting in a lot more infections and deaths, despite that lower virulence because of the overwhelming number of infections. We have vaccines that work pretty well against all current variants and work very well if two doses and a booster have been injected to bolster one's immune system against the disease and to perk it up after that immunity wanes with time. At the moment, some countries are seeing just staggering surges in infections, but most have seen their Omicron waves peak over the past several weeks. Those that have peaked generally still have pretty high infection rates, and some are still seeing a lot of COVID-related deaths, which tend to be lagging indicators, as new infection numbers can wane, but people who caught COVID during that waning wave will still be stuck in hospitals, getting worse and in some cases dying from that earlier surge. Also worth noting here is that even after the peak has crested and the parabola is in a downslope, many countries have more infections per day than during previous waves. Omicron is less virulent, so they'll have fewer, on average, serious cases. But passing that peak, in this case, means something different than before because of that heightened transmissibility. So the post-peak, massively decreased numbers in many places right now are still higher than previous peak numbers, which frankly makes a lot of the charts that we've been utilizing somewhat less intuitively useful, because by some metrics we're way worse off than at any point in the pandemic thus far. But by others, things are looking up, despite the ominous bumps on some of these graphs. This piece in the Times is notable because of what it describes, a potential return to some kind of normalcy, even in regions in which masking and vaccinations and other efforts to ameliorate the worst impacts of the pandemic have been enthusiastic and widespread. More specifically, it's about a governor who is a Democrat, and in the U.S., on average, Democrats have been more ardent about masking and getting vaccinated, and in many cases more likely to shut down schools and enforce harder-core lockdown rules on businesses 
While, on average, Republicans have chalked out the opposite position, being more in favor of no masks, no lockdowns, and so on. And this governor, who himself has imposed very stringent pandemic mandates, is saying that beginning in March, students and employees will no longer be required to wear masks at schools. This governor, Philip Murphy, then went on to say this while announcing the end of the existing school-wide mask mandate, quote, This is not a declaration of victory as much as an acknowledgement that we can responsibly live with this thing, end quote. Now, this is not the first mask mandate milestone in the U.S., not even amongst Democratic leaders. Others have also dropped them, and some Republican leaders dropped them ages ago, or just never enforced them to begin with. Democratic leaders in Connecticut, Delaware, and Oregon have also announced in the past week or two that they will be ending mask mandates in schools over the course of the next few months. So these are people, these Democratic leaders at least, who have been staunch supporters of ongoing, at times quite arduous, mandates related to the pandemic as part of a larger effort to keep people safe and reduce the negative impacts of this contagion. And these announcements are occurring even as the U.S. continues to post record-setting pandemic numbers. In mid-January, the U.S. hit a peak of more than 800,000 new official, and official numbers are generally considered to be lower than the real numbers because a lot of these things are just not counted, 800,000 new official infections on a single day. And we're way down from that at just under 300,000 new infections a day as of the day I'm recording this. But that lowered number is still above previous peaks, which hit 250,000 new infections on one day back in the winter of 2020 and nearly 165,000 when Delta peaked in September of 2021. So we are double that Delta peak range as these announcements are being made. We haven't yet matched the highest daily death toll established in mid-January of 2021 before vaccines were widely available, when more than 3,400 official COVID deaths on a single day were tallied in the U.S. But we are currently, as of the day I'm recording this, establishing a second highest peak with around 2,500 deaths a day in the U.S. alone from COVID. That's higher than the early 2020 days before we had vaccines. That's higher than the peak we hit with Delta in September of last year. It's high. It's a lot of death every day. And it's likely to go down just as the infection numbers have gone down, but it hasn't yet. So by some measures, it's remarkable that we're having this discussion about getting rid of mask mandates on a day in which we're seeing nearly as many deaths as we saw on 9-11 happen every single day in the United States. That's pretty wild, as earlier, lower death rates resulted in the widespread acceptance and adoption of pretty hardcore lockdown procedures and widespread fear globally. Many things have changed in the interim, though, and not just in the U.S., this is something we're seeing in slightly different shapes throughout the world right now. One of the most impactful changes, and one that is almost certainly informing a lot of the other rationales that are being given for why we should end pandemic-era mandates and restrictions at the moment, 
is the accumulated exhaustion of years' worth of worry and fear and, in some cases, severely limited options. The psychological burden of living through a pandemic, even if you're relatively safe and well-off, is substantial. It's even worse if you're in the thick of things, dealing with other human beings daily, perhaps in difficult financial straits. The uncertainty and pervasiveness of this kind of threat vector just wears at people, whatever the specifics, though. And you can see physical manifestations of that exhaustion in how people respond to other pressures in their lives. Surveys conducted in the U.S. suggest that while the vast majority of the population says that COVID-era restrictions have been worth the cost, of which there are many, a large segment of the population has also become a little checked out on the matter. News and other informational consumption related to the pandemic was sky high in 2020, but began to peak in early 2021. And at this point, in early 2022, although there was a bump when Omicron first became a thing, we're generally kind of just done with it and want to think about and focus on other things after a long, long period of learning and worrying about this one pervasive potential source of danger. There's also concern for some subsets of people within our societies who are being forced to put off or change all their plans at vital moments of their lives. Students in particular have lost a lot in terms of not being able to engage in normal periods of socialization and education. And who can say what their professional prospects will look like now that many of our expected milestones aren't really relevant to them and their experiences? Recent research suggests many people, including parents of school-aged kids, are more concerned about emotional, social, and academic consequences related to pandemic mandates and rules than they are about the possibility of their kids becoming infected or bringing COVID home and infecting them. This is new. Previously, the majority of parents and students and teachers were more concerned about COVID than the seemingly short-term impact of disrupting their academic careers and social lives for some finite period of time. And some of this shift might be related to the aforementioned intellectual exhaustion, but some of it may be the result of the data we now have, which suggests that younger people, on average, tend to be much better protected by their immune systems, and blending that with the lower virulence of Omicron and the increasing availability of vaccines for school-aged kids, the risks involved with catching COVID at school may seem more acceptable if taking those risks allows students to go to school, to socialize and learn normally, and in turn, back home, free up the parents to have lives beyond taking care of kids who are stuck at home and not able to do the things they want to do. Childcare burdens are emotionally exhausting, but can also hinder one's career, one's social life, and impact pretty much every other aspect of a parent or caretaker's life. All that said, many researchers and medical professionals are advising against a complete narrative shift toward normalcy, at this time at least, because there's still a chance we'll have another Omicron-style wave caused by a new variant at some point in the near future. And this remains a potential threat until and unless we can get more people vaccinated or otherwise protected against catching it. 
as the more hosts there are for a disease, the more opportunities it has to mutate. It's more dice rolls, basically. And even if it's unlikely, any single roll will result in something more dangerous or contagious. Roll enough dice, and the odds of such an outcome go up, and we end up with a new variant. If we decide everything's normal and the current risks are acceptable, if we can just get back to living then, we might pull down the barriers and restrictions, the tools that are keeping things stable today. And that would leave us prone to this theoretical new variant, which could then hurt us a lot more than it would have had we moved more slowly and had we been a bit more careful with our return to something approximating normal. There's also a chance that things as they are now, with just garden-variety Omicron, could worsen if we remove those barriers too quickly. A lot of the norms and risks we know today are as low as they are because of the space we're keeping between people, periodic lockdowns, masks, vaccines, and everything else. And there's a chance that annoying as these things can be, and exhausted as we all are, with all of it, if we just drop it all suddenly, we could see a lot more infections, long-term medical consequences, and deaths that need not have happened had we had a bit more patience and social durability. It's a possibility, then, that in the coming months we'll hear a lot of messaging that's operating at cross-purposes. Politicians and other leaders have a lot of very rational reasons to want to segue toward normal as quickly as possible as there are potent political consequences for taking away people's freedom to do whatever they want whenever they want to do it, and protests and even acts of violence related to mandates of all kinds have become increasingly common. Extremists of various flavors have been able to launder support for their often more radical and violent causes through the relatively mainstream opposition to mask mandates and vaccines, so moving away from mandates would let a little steam out of these movements, diminishing the power of that particular pressure cooker, while also allowing these leaders to help their local economies and citizenry rebuild their economic and social foundations. At the same time, we'll likely hear messages from medical professionals saying that, yes, there's a lot to look forward to, and the numbers are trending positively. And there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon from pan-coronavirus vaccines, which would give us immunity to all coronaviruses, including future COVID variants that don't exist yet, to new treatments that can be used on people who get serious COVID infections, which will dramatically improve their outcomes. But at the moment, we should be careful not to celebrate before we've reached the finish line lest we accidentally set ourselves up to lose the race or to be forced into starting over or starting an entirely new one. We may be approaching a moment in which COVID might become endemic, less dangerous and deadly, and less contagious because of immunity barriers we've put into place. But there's a good chance we're not quite there yet, at least not all the way. And there are good arguments to be made for continuing to pursue this disease till it is dead like we did with smallpox. Because after all, as I mentioned in the intro, the flu is endemic and still kills tens of thousands of people a year in the U.S. alone. We can decide those deaths, each one a tragedy, are okay, are acceptable. But we can also build atop what we've learned these past two years and potentially 
if we decide to do so, manage quite a bit more than that. So there will be sacrifices to be made, whichever direction we choose. And it may be that part of our responsibility in the coming months is collectively deciding what we want to sacrifice and what we want to gain. The book I'd like to recommend today is called After Jesus Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of Jesus movements by Aaron Vernkom, Brandon Scott, and Hal Tossig. This is a very well-researched, well-documented, scholarly work on a subject that I didn't even know I was curious about until I read a summary about it. But in essence, it's a collection of work by scholars, people who have cobbled together as much information as they've been able to cobble together about the period between when the concept of a teacher named Jesus, or something approximating that, came into being and became a sort of meme that spread around, and when an official religion and set of dogmatic tenets started to arise around this. And this period is especially interesting because there was many different forking manifestations of similar concepts, but a lot of them went in surprisingly different directions, and the way they were ultimately stitched together into something more totemic is quite interesting as well. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of After Jesus Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of Jesus' movements by Aaron Vernkolm. Brandon Scott, and Hal Tossig. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects, podcasts and writings and otherwise, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.